0: Hello and welcome to Will at Warwick. My name is Tom Abbott and this week we look at how Shakespeare's plays reflect both the best and the worst of humanity. Later, Bardathon blogger Peter Cohen reviews three very different performances of Macbeth, which range from the brutally violent to the absurd and finally exploring the possibility of hope in the Scottish play. But first, Dr Laurie Maguire of Magdalen College Oxford spoke to Dominic Dean about her latest book, Where There's a Will, There's a Way, or All I Really Need to Know I Learned from Shakespeare. Described as Shakespeare for the Oprah generation, this book explores how the plays shed light on the issues and dilemmas that face us all. This is Dominic
1: Dean from the Capital Centre at the University of Warwick. I'm joined now by Dr Laurie Maguire of Magdalen College Oxford who has recently published her new book, Where There's a Will, There's a Way, or All I Really Need to Know I Learned from Shakespeare. Laurie, that's quite a title. Um, could you tell us a little bit about it? What what sort of an unusual book on Shakespeare is this?
2: Yes, it grew out of personal experience. Um, I was having a midlife crisis year, and because I was in the United States at the time, which is the land of self-help literature, I read my way through the entire self-help section of the local bookstore, and that's when I realized I'd read it all before in Shakespeare. So it's about Shakespeare as a guide to life. Um,
1: as a help book, in fact. Perhaps.
2: Indeed, but it's also an introduction to Shakespeare. Uh, it's for people who have found life difficult and want to get more out of it, or for people who have found Shakespeare difficult and want to get more out of him. Um, it's um, a sort of combination, I suppose, of... Eat, shoots and Leaves meets Bridget Jones.
1: When you're um, talking about Shakespeare, do you mean sort of reading Shakespeare privately as a text or watching public performances?
2: Uh, Both. I mean approaching Shakespeare um, from the point of view of plot, situation, and character, which is uh, a rather outmoded uh, approach in academic circumstances. But in fact, um, the basic questions of life haven't changed. Why does this character make this decision in this situation? Um, and over 400 years, I think the human heart hasn't changed. And it's, it's um, from the point of view of, of what we might call humans, but let's say characters, if we're being more academic, that actors' first approach plays um, and that audiences' first approach plays. You respond at the very human level. Everything else after that is an add-on.
1: And do you think that's perhaps been forgotten in academia, the sort of initial response to the character, to the human being?
2: Um. I'm not sure if it's been forgotten so much as downgraded because, of course, A.C. Bradley, that um, fantastic standard Shakespeare school text that most of us grew up on throughout the 20th century, um, brought that approach into disrepute uh, by turning it into a very touchy-feely way of thinking. I mean, for him, it was almost creative writing, trying to work out what was going on in Gertrude's life.
1: And Um, you wanted to avoid that in this book?
2: Yes, I think it's possible to have a more nuanced approach to character criticism and not to throw the baby out with the bathwater.
1: So in some ways it's trying to find a balance between the kind of heavy, perhaps slightly distanced um, academic criticism and the H. C. Bradley approach. Is that fair to say?
2: Indeed, yes. That's a, that's a very good summary.
1: And when you're um, you know, looking for self-help in Shakespeare, which are the plays and characters that sort of stand out most?
2: Well, the entire range of human experiences in these plays. Uh, So we've got 37 or 38, depending on how you count the canon, maybe even 39 blueprints for life. Um, Anger, jealousy, racism, broken hearts, dysfunctional families. Um, But certainly um, the year in which I was first thinking about writing the book um, was a year in which my father was dying. And so Hamlet, um, as a play, Um, started to have a new resonance for me. I had never had um, the time of day, really, for Hamlet when I was a student um, because I just thought, why doesn't he get on with doing what he's been asked to do?
1: Is Uh, that a problem in Shakespeare, then, that certain experiences um, described in the plays aren't accessible until you've had them yourself?
2: um, Well, if we we can turn that round and say that um, Shakespeare treats so sympathetically the concerns of more than one kind of audience uh, giving voice to the viewpoints of old young male female rich poor and so on that you can read um and approach henry four from the point of view of the the young teenager hall or you can fast forward a few years when you're a parent yourself and look at it sympathetically from the point of view of the frustrated parent
1: so the diversity in shakespeare is is perhaps.
2: Um, absolutely. Uh, it allows many kinds of audience members, many kind of readers, the pleasure of identification with his characters.
1: And you've talked about um, obviously Shakespeare as self-help and um, the sort of need to avoid some of the um heavier um, recent academic criticism. But there is a uh, tradition, isn't there, of uh, psychoanalytic criticism of Shakespeare. I'm thinking of uh, some uh, psychoanalytic and Freudian readings of Hamlet in particular. So does that come into the book as well, or is that Um. something you've tried to avoid?
2: Um, it doesn't come deliberately into the book, but I think what what is, is quite interesting is that if you take um, a very eminent psychotherapist like Freud, all his initial case studies were from literary situations. He turned to Shakespeare to illustrate his point. He turned to Greek drama. He turned to Ibsen. Um, we talk about the edible complex as a psychoanalytic phenomenon, but of course it comes from Greek drama. Yeah. So all I'm doing is... Um, is going back over that territory without the psychoanalytic qualification, but my qualification is that I'm a human being, and taking my case studies of life situations from Shakespeare's plays, not from clients.
1: And you mentioned um, some other drama, like Ibsen and uh, Greek Tragedy, which, you know, both obviously have connections to Shakespeare, but what is it that makes Shakespeare stand out in a way that other writers don't as a source of this kind of consolation?
2: It's a a very good question, and and I've wondered about the possible answers to that. I mean, the the answers that we normally give um, are are clearly not correct. For instance, um, the fact that his plays um, have been so well appreciated over four centuries uh, in widely varying contexts shows that it's not about historical context. These are not Elizabethan plays. Uh, The fact that they've been so well appreciated in so many languages in translations shows that the thing that we appreciate Shakespeare for, uh, one of the things we appreciate Shakespeare for, his beautiful poetic speech, is not what makes him durable. And I think it is this interest in the personal, in the psychological, uh, which which is actually not a typical um, Renaissance dramatic interest. It's, it's an irony that we hold Shakespeare up as the paradigm of Renaissance drama writing. But in fact, his interest in human motivation um, sets him apart from the Marlows and the Middletons of the world.
1: So would you agree with the sort of timeless quality of Shakespeare then? That's what makes him special.
2: It sounds a bit bardolatrous to say yes, but, but the answer is yes, I do agree with that.
1: Right. And if um, we're sort of aiming to empathise more with Shakespeare's characters and identify with them, what kind of consequences do you think that has for Shakespeare in performance and how directors and actors should look at the text? Have they perhaps become distanced from it like academics and need to recover something, or is the uh, performance quite, still immediate?
2: Quite, quite the, the contrary, in fact. I mean, I, I learned um, most of what... Um, I know about approaching Shakespeare from rehearsals, from working with actors, from observing actors. Um, And actors have never lost touch with this insight. Um, Actors always start with, why does my character say this? Why is my character silent here? Uh, Why am I doing this at this moment? Um, So
1: actors um, can teach academics some things, maybe.
2: Absolutely,
1: So you mentioned that you focus on Hamlet in particular. Are there any other plays that you take as case studies in the book?
2: Yes, and in fact, the book um, um, has 16 chapters, and each one contains about three plays, so you can get through the entire canon with the book. Um, I was very interested in... um, Racism and jealousy in Othello, Um, and quite coincidentally, the two subjects came together for me when I was researching uh, the psychological backgrounds to jealousy. It is indeed, um, as as Amelia says, uh, a baseless emotion, jealous soul. They're not ever jealous for the cause, but jealous for their jealous. Don't look for a reason behind jealousy, she says. It's simply, um, it, it, it has no rational, logical base, And when I was looking at racism, I found that psychologists say exactly the same about racism. It is a very uncerebral reaction. It's a baseless reaction. It is, in fact, as Amelia says about jealousy, a monster begot upon itself, born on itself. And I was looking at those as two separate concepts. But, of course, Shakespeare brings them together in Othello. And it suddenly made sense to me um, of the, the question, why would you put a plot of sexual marital jealousy side by side with a plot about racism? And the answer is, psychologically, they are the same phenomenon. So that was uh, rather an interesting uh, discovery, I think. Um, The other theme that runs through the book is the very high opinion that Shakespeare has of women, and the need um, he feels for women to be given a voice. Um, And this is, is common to the comedies as well as it is to the tragedies. I mean, for Shakespeare, a tragic situation is silencing a woman, as we see quite literally in the case of Desdemona. And Catherine in The Taming of the Shrew has, for me, the manifesto speech in Shakespeare about women's need to speak up. My tongue will tell the anger of my heart or else my heart conceding it will break. And she goes on to say, rather than it shall, I will be free, even to the uttermost, as I please, in words.
1: Well, I'm fascinated by you calling it the manifesto speech as well, because <laughs> a lot of these um, these issues that you're drawing up are not just matters of individual psychology, are they, but um, also political issues like the racism, like the women's issues that we're finding now. Um, so how far do you sort of move towards the politics of these um, psychological phenomena in the book?
2: Well, um, it's a cliche now to say, of course, that the political is always the personal, um, but, uh, but cliches are simply truths we become borders, <laughs> so it's worth repeating that. Um, secondly, I think that what emerges from Shakespeare's plays, and we see it in politics, um, is that there is no um kind of one size fits all explanation behind a personality or a political situation uh, that things are always very very specific um you see that um in the the kind of um um, police analysis of car crashes, you know, that there's yes. no one explanation, one, no one cause. Uh, this person wasn't looking out, this one was sleepy, this one was going too fast. And the combination of circumstances combined uh, to cause a tragedy. And Just I think
1: like that's, in a Shakespeare play. Perhaps. Just
2: like in a Shakespeare play, just like in a political situation, uh, trying to understand um, the politics of King Lear means trying to understand the family dynamic in Lear. In King Lear, it means trying to understand um, the different positions people are occupying in in King Lear, which is to say we're often encouraged to think that life's about destination, about getting somewhere. It's about definitions, about who we are at given moments, and that changes from moment to moment. I think it's no accident that one of Shakespeare's favourite classical authors is Ovid, and Ovid is the poet of change. I mean, Metamorphosis is about change. And King Lear is a play about family change, and that has political repercussions. But it starts off with an elderly man feeling unloved, take early retirement it starts off with a young teenage daughter who's ethical self-righteous principled inflexible all the things that teenagers are you've got these two constituencies clashing um, and there are political consequences
1: and it just uh, listening to your uh, reading of Leah that that's me you sometimes um, come up with quite unusual or, or at least not obvious um, readings of the plays in the book, you? like in terms of Lies, um you have quite a lot of sympathy for the king, it, it, or at least that's how it seemed to me.
2: Yes, and, and I've seen productions where I've um, not had sympathy for the king, and it's perfectly possible not to have sympathy for the king. Um, but I think that one of the things that has emerged for me in reading all the plays is Shakespeare's um, interest in trying to see things from the viewpoint of somebody else, trying to see a situation from someone else's point of view. Um, And I've certainly um, got friends and colleagues who say that um, seeing King Lear in the presence of their parents um, is a very different experience from watching the play in the presence of their children.
0: Um, If you're with
2: your children, you think about it as a parent. If you're with your parent, you think about it as a child. And, of course, Lear is a difficult, irascible and unreasonable parent and monarch. And even Goneril and Regan have very insightful moments where they make that quite clear. And we see it ourselves at the beginning when he's blatantly favoritizing the youngest daughter and says, she's always been my favorite. Um, But what is behind, um, what, what has made him create this ridiculous love test situation in the first place? Um, So instead of responding just to the setup in Act 1, I started to think about what underlay that setup. And, of course, retirement is a very difficult moment. Taking early retirement is an even more difficult moment. Um, Our sense of identity is so predicated on external valuations that if you give up um, the title of a king, where do you get your sense of value? And so Lear takes the step rather oddly of setting up a situation which will quite materially, literally declare his worth, which of his daughters loves him most. It's a ridiculous um, kind of love test, but the human emotion behind it is actually very understandable.
1: And just um, going back to when you um, mentioned about the Leah you w- once saw, or, or maybe more than once saw in the theatre, who was a Leah who wasn't so sympathetic as that, is that... Um, perhaps, again, a difficulty of performance, that it's it's sometimes in the gift of the actors as to who you empathize with most.
2: Mm, and that's not a difficulty of performance, it's an attraction of performance, and it's why I go and see the same play over and over and over again, because it is a different um, play each time. And uh, the situation... Um, is inflected differently um, depending on how the director's viewing it, or, or how the, the actors are viewing it. Um, and th- there are always more than one point of view in any given situation, whether it's life um, or theatre. And I think, I mean, going back to Shakespeare's self-help, that's how Shakespeare and drama, particularly, but literature in general can help us understand situations because it it trains us or it attunes us to thinking about things from multiple points of view. I mean, the central question of the literary critic is how many ways can this text have meaning? And if it's an actor, you think about that in terms of scene by scene situations, uh, you've got a very rich um, um, arsenal for coping with life.
1: And Shakespeare himself perhaps seems to encourage you to Uh, read him that way as well, because he's, uh, well, it often seems, although this is controversial, a a very non-judgmental author, one who's sort of willing to to give all the different um, voices a chance without ever making his own voice clear. Is that fair to say?
2: Absolutely. And I... Again, I think it's not coincidence that when Shakespeare takes a source text and rewrites it, one of the first things he does is remove the didacticism, take out the morals, um, so that um, Brooke's um, long poem on Romeo and Juliet will tell you that this is a problem when children disobey their parents or yeah. believe in superstitious friars, um, whereas Shakespeare just says, look at the pressures we're putting on our young people. And I think that... Um, In terms of Shakespeare's dramatic structure, um, what he's interested in are always the five acts of leading up to a situation. Uh, I mean, the Websters of the world can start with the situation. The Duchess of Malfi gets remarried, and then you see the fallout from that. Um, Shakespeare is very interested in the bits that go before that, how someone would make that decision in the first place. And the decision might be right or it might be wrong, but he's not interested in legislating on that. Um, so yes, this plurality, this open-minded, this non-judgmental nature of Shakespeare um, is fantastically attractive because he is—he is, um, he, he is giving—he um, is showing the range of experience, and and therapists, particularly good therapists. Do not prescribe. They do not judge. No. They show you how you got into that um, setup,
1: which is exactly what Shakespeare does. Uh,
2: completely. And by seeing how people um, create problems, solve problems, negotiate problems, um, we are in a very good position to um, to take our own lessons from what we're watching if a lesson is what one's looking for.
1: And if Shakespeare and yourself in writing your own book are seeking to, well, essentially help people um, by by using him uh, in a self-help way, have you um, sort of had any response to this yet from readers, anyone who's sort of, uh, you know, told you it works? Or?
2: Um, I've, I've had a surprising mailbag, actually, from, from all over the world of um, people from all walks of life. I mean, um, CEOs and lawyers and truck drivers and gardeners uh, sharing their experience and giving me their interpretation of plays and I've been uh, phenomenally moved um, um, on a very human level that people would be sharing these stories um, and that they'd be sharing their Shakespearean experience as well that uh, it's, it's, it's it's been a a rather interesting reminder of just how many people are reading Shakespeare and how many people are writing and saying, I didn't like Shakespeare at school, but I have seen him in the theatre and I have read your book and this has helped. Um, And I've also had queries about, you know, your book is helpful, but isn't it anachronistic? Should we be reading Shakespeare in this way? Um, And of course, We've got to remember that Shakespeare is at the end of a century that we call um, the century of humanist literature. Uh, And humanism is the term we give to the bit that bridges the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, That is the replacement of a God-centered medieval world by one based on humans and their potential. Uh, And the idea in the 16th century was if God made the world for humans, then cultivating yourself is a way of respecting God. And the result of that was a flurry of how-to books, I mean, how to be the best you can possibly be. And Hamlet is the quintessential humanist thinker, and what he thinks about is what it means to be human.
1: Which is all, I suppose, at the end of the day, any of us needs to know.
2: I think so, yes. And um, our definitions of human um, vary from moment to moment. We're always in negotiation. We're always in flux. And Shakespeare's interested not in any kind of elemental, archetypal uh, human sense. I mean, one often hears, you know, Lear trying to find out um, what it is, who is it can tell me um, who I am. Uh, But he's interested in the human self at specific moments. I mean, what happens when a black man marries a white woman in a cello. What happens when a talkative woman marries a feisty man in Taming of the Shrew? These are very specific moments that always then um, put our definitions of ourselves into temporary crisis as we renegotiate.
0: Macbeth is not necessarily a play you would reach for if you were looking for positive advice on how to live your life. A tragic tale of murder and revenge, it perhaps provides an insight into the very worst of mankind. Three recent performances have examined this perspective by taking the story to extremes of violence and absurdity. In his latest column for Will at Warwick, Peter Kirwan discusses the three performances and how they shed new light on one of the darker plays in the canon.
3: One of the most interesting things about seeing the entire complete works was the chance to see several productions of the same play in close sync with each other. Oddly, in Britain, uh, plays seem to come in groups. One year there'll be uh, lots of Midsummer Night's Streams, the other, next year there'll be lots of Fellows and this year is the year of Macbeth. At the moment, Patrick Stewart's starring at the Chichester Festival in a highly acclaimed production, and Regent's Park have just opened an open-air one. In the last three months, however, there have been three productions all in Stratford-upon-Avon, all at the Swan in the same theatre, all taking a completely different view uh, of the story of Macbeth. The first of the productions is the RSC's production, which features an international cast doing a relatively straight reading uh, of, of, of a story using Shakespeare's language and fairly uncut. What this production has done uh, with Irish director Conal Morrison is explore the witches in a way which I certainly have never seen on stage before. The play starts with Macbeth and Banquo in the middle of the, the Civil War, slaughtering women and children in a very bloody way, rarely seen at the start of the play. As the women and children die their bodies are left on the stage From those ashes, when the stage is cleared, three women rise up, three of the dead women, clutching their dead children to their their bodies, and they become the witches. And throughout the whole play, the witches are almost always on stage. They play all of the the servants, the waiting women, the messengers, and the play becomes a revenge story. These three three women, um, bereft of their children, pursuing the man who killed them. It's an unusual reading of the play, as it takes away a lot of the ambiguity that people people love about the story. Um, the, the age-old debate around Beth is always how much choice does he have, how evil is he, and how much is put upon him by the witches. In this one, he's evil from the start. He has very few redeeming features, uh, and the witches are pursuing a, a righteous course of vengeance, but in a very bu- brutal way. And the play is is quite sickening in its in its. Presentation of brutality. The scene of Lady Macduff caused a 14 plus rating to be put on the play, as it features Lady Macduff, the pregnant Lady Macduff's womb being skewered with a knife and her unborn baby being scooped out in front of her eyes. It's had it's had middling middling to bad reviews. Um, There's a very very interesting production at the heart of it, but it's just been a little too full on for some people. The same company simultaneously tack- tackling a play called Macbeth. This is by Eugene Ionesco, who is one of the, the great theatre of the absurd practitioners. It turns Macbeth into a comic farce of, of, of the blackest kind, where the evil Archduke Duncan leads a fairly totalitarian regime, and um, Macbeth, one of his generals, is seduced by Lady Duncan to murder the Archduke and, and claim his place. It's bizarre. It's a weird, weird little play, um, but fascinating at the same time. The running motifs for the whole play are uh, are a a circus theme, a fairground-style band playing in the gallery, and bizarre visual images. Throughout the whole play, Macbeth and Duncan tussle over um, a tiny child-sized throne, which they sling over their backs or try to uproot from the floor. Lady Duncan herself becomes one of the witches in this um, which is quite a nice link with the same production of Macbeth in that the the witches in both have a very clear motivation for their um, uh, for their, their poisoning of Macbeth or here Macbeth and here the, the, the most striking image is Lady Duncan uh, as a as a masked old man slowly casting off her mask and her robes and everything to reveal um, and performing striptease uh, for Macbeth, as she as she quite literally seduces him uh, over to to the dark side, there are some really interesting parallels between the two productions. Most notably in the in the relationship between Macbeth and Banquo, or he, uh, Macbeth and Banquo, as their relationship develops in the Macbeth production, Banquo is 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 very traditionally shown as alongside Macbeth for most of it. Even though he has suspicion of his friends, deciding not to, to go any further. Here, Banco is in Macbeth. Banco is far more explicit. He he assists in the the murder of Duncan. Macbeth is so threatened by the idea of Banco's descendants taking over him that he uh, he castrates uh, Banco on stage before Banco comes back to haunt him along with the ghost of Duncan. The third production, which uh, was one of the final productions in the Complete Works Festival, was by a Polish company whose name I struggle to pronounce, um, Tieta Pierson um, which translates as Song of the Goat Theatre. This is a fascinating company who work internationally, primarily with Polish actors, but they, they also run courses in association with uh, with an English university. A big element of their company is made up of members of a... Of a group who've spent the last twenty years retracing and rebuilding um, the music and heritage of a of a lost culture, a small civilization that was that was that was flooded a uh, hundred or so years ago, and this this company's work is is partly designed around recovering their their music and their ways of communicating. This production was a a work in progress, um, which is scheduled to be ready in time for April 2008, and was presented as a series of scenes and moments based on Macbeth. Uh, They would take a keyword such as crown, castle, ghost, and show a scene based around that. It's a production which is almost impossible to do justice to in description, because it was the music of it which was more overwhelming than anything. The play opened with the entire cast sat on hard-backed thrones facing into a circle so the audience couldn't see any of them and creating, just with their voices, a beautiful range of harmonies as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth paced around the outside of a circle making their plan to kill Duncan. The music was... Was sort of empowering, more more than anything. Um, very, very, very emotional and very uplifting. But juxtaposed at the same time with one with one of the key decline scenes of, of the play, the, the scene where Macbeth does actually um, decide to kill Duncan. The music became an integral part of the text. The actual dialogue was conducted in Polish, um, and there were subtitles, but the music was far more communicative than anything else. And as the work in progress went on, they started coupling this music with physical activity. The scene, which is always written off as the dullest in Macbeth, um, which is the the conversation in England between Malcolm and Macduff, was conducted as forward roles. The two characters standing at opposite corners of the stage and somersaulting over each other, rolling underneath each other, um, cartwheeling across the stage, often really narrowly missing each other, almost if they were Capira um, dancers. And then later, Ross arrived and again joined in, and it was just these, these three male bodies twisting and turning and, and moving around each other. And then when they combine this with the music and have these harmonies going with this intense physical acrobatic activity, it was sheer spectacle, even as a work in progress. It was an experience more, more than a play, and yet it still came across as Macbeth. The most exciting thing that was, was was brought out of each What was a focus on on war as the great divider of men and the great stimulator of, of, of powerful powerful emotions and powerful motivations in, in men. In Macbeth, we saw that war was the, um, the, the prime motivation of the plot, that, which and the atrocities of, that caused in war. In Macbeth, um, war was the constant. We started in war, we finished with war. Um, at the end of Macbeth, Malcolm returned and promised even even greater atrocities in his time. And the victorious people were, gra- were gradually cowed by him. And then in, uh, in the Polish Macbeth, war became an overpowering experience. Um, they built a fort on stage, which the actors somersaulted back and forth from, constantly fighting, constantly moving, relentlessly driven to, to these final moments of, of, of destruction. In, um, in the Polish Macbeth, very few people were to blame. There was a lot of a lot of innocence, a lot of hope among the 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 good in *Inverted commas, characters. Whereas in *Macbeth*, there was no hope. There were there were no redeeming features. There was no one who you could engage with or, or support or support. Seeing all of them in in, cl- in close sync with each other really highlighted for me the the ambiguity of of most of the characters. When when you move away from the, from the, the the central characters, suddenly. Duncan isn't necessarily the saintly king he's, he's made out to be. Suddenly, Malcolm isn't the redeeming avenger he's made out to be. Even Macduff, um, you know, the, the ultimate killer of Macbeth in that great fight between good and evil, can just be following his own, his own struggle for power.
0: That's all for this episode. Until next time, goodbye.